Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. On tonight's episode of The Young Female Pope. It is time, Your Holiness. You must give your speech to the crowd in the piazza. I can't. Cardinal Aligo, I have got the worst cramps right now. Uh, Perhaps it was the shrimp from last night, Holiness? Not that kind of cramp, you idiot. I'm menstruating. Ah! Stop it, you cardinals are such wussies. If I'm to be your pope, you can't fly into hysterics every time I mention a normal, healthy process like the monthly discharge of fluids through my... Vi- ah! Stop! What did I just tell you? Actually, that one might have been a little bit my fault. We will pray to the Virgin, Your Holiness, to make this horrible thing stop happening. No, no, don't do that. That would be weird. Look, I'm not going to get pregnant because I'm the Pope. That means that this very basic human function is going to happen like clockwork once a month until I... Until... Is it really hot in here? Just the opposite, Your Holiness. The windows are open and it's quite chilly. Hmm. Okay, well, the good news is that maybe this process will stop fairly soon, but the bad news is that there's a whole other process I'm going to have to explain to you. While I do that, here's, to borrow a term from the poultry world, the Pope's nose. And now he plays the mother superior who jumped the gun, Colin McEnroe. Do people still even use that term, the Pope's nose, for part of a chicken? Uh, I have no idea. All right. So, um, yes, today we are going to talk about the the young Pope on HBO with, and we'll also talk about Mary Tyler Moore. We'll talk about uh, a brouhaha, a dust-up in the world of comedy involving a perhaps ill-timed tweet, perhaps not ill-timed tweet, by a writer for Saturday Night Live. Uh, Joining us is Rebecca Castellani, a scholar of modern literature. Tanisha Dugan, uh, producing associate at TheaterWorks in Jacques Lamar, a senior project manager at Buzz Engine. I still don't quite understand what Buzz Engine is, but that's okay. Uh, I don't have to. Um, I can endorse it later. Yes, just endorse it. (laughs) All right. Um, So, um, HBO... Uh, I, I'll just back up and say that one of the more talked about and uh, eagerly anticipated uh, series of this TV season is The Young Pope. Uh, and people have been uh, excited about it for a while. Um, and even people who had seen it uh, were also very excited about it when I was in New York a few weeks ago before it had even started. People who had seen it were very excited. And so we decided to watch it. It is um, directed and written by Paolo Sorrentino. Uh, everything that he does is at least potentially exciting because several years ago he directed The Great Beauty, which is one of the really best movies of the last five years, won an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. But The Young Pope, which features Jude Law as a young pope, (laughs) is maybe a little different than I had imagined anyway. Uh, And um, so just to sort of declare uh, our levels of familiarity with this topic, uh, Jacques was a seminarian in Rome. Uh, I covered uh, one papal conclave in Rome as a journalist. So... uh, so, Jacques, you get to go first. Oh, I just in general, we'll, in general we'll, we'll play a clip of Jude in just a second uh, as the young pope. But w- what are you making 
of um, of this series about uh, Jude Law as a young man, youngish man, Lenny Bellardo, I believe is his real name. He becomes Pope Pius XIII, uh, and hijinks unfold. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was super excited about about the show. Um, seeing the previews for it, it looked amazing, and um, and I watched the first episode, and it's. It's this very odd mix of sort of – I don't know if absurdist is the is the right word. I'm getting the nod from the uh, modern literature scholar. Um, I think she might have been nodding at the word mix actually, but yeah. go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean it, it's this mix of you know uh, absurd uh, elements and, and a bit of a pot boiler at the same time. And um, I have to say in terms of the details of the Vatican – um, in term, you know, it it's a it's really beautifully shot. Uh, the the having been in St. Peter's, been in St. Peter's Square, been in the Sistine Chapel. Um, I look at all the details, and they really nailed a lot of those details down to the Swiss guards' uniforms um, when the Swiss guards wearing clothes. Um, and uh, but it's. It's so kind of oddly written and the principal character is so unpleasant and he's enigmatic purposefully but he's um, uh, you know, in so many ways such an ugly character that um, trying to hang in there for the mystery of why he was elected and uh, pope and what he wants to accomplish as pope um, is – is uh, Turning into a little bit of a chore. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, Tanisha, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it is hard to figure out whether we we're supposed to um, laugh at it, laugh with it, not laugh at all. Uh, it, it approaches all of those moods at various times. It does. I, when I watched it, I watched it sort of in and out of sleep. So it seemed really compelling to me because <laughs> <laughs> there are moments that are really just weird in like a what the hell just happened kind of thing. And when you're coming out of sleep, you're like, wait a minute, are they playing soccer or are they standing still? What's happening? Oh, now they're playing soccer. It does lend itself soccer. to the dream vision. It, absolutely. Yeah. There, are, there are nuns playing soccer, including one nun with a tremendous left-footed penalty kick. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, you know, from from that place, it was, it was an interesting thing to watch. I started to watch it again, you know, conscious. And I think there's there's a part of it that if you're looking at it through the lens of where we are as a country and you're really looking at it like that, then you you can forgive his unlikability because you can make an excuse for it in some way, if that makes sense. Um, so the, this is a, such a – first of all, we should say that Tanisha, as a working mother of very young children, is just never going to get any sleep or at least any consistent <laughs> sleep and is going to have the, this kind of fragmented consciousness for <laughs> – She any, could if she watches The Young Pope. Right. For any number of consecutive years. But um, – but, like but in a way, that's perfect, right? Uh, Rebecca, in a sense, this, this series, because it keeps kind of slipping in and out of different phases – you know, sliding in and out of different modes without a whole lot of warning. Maybe that kind of episodic quasi-dream state in which Tanisha now lives is the perfect state in which to try to absorb this series. It was most certainly the state I viewed it in. I, <laughs> I really tried to tough it up and stay awake, and I just kept falling asleep. And I have sleep problems, so I was like, maybe this is a sleep aid I've been looking for. Who knows? <laughs> but I did, 
you know, I, I'm compelled by it and I'm confused by it in equal measure. Um, I, I want, as Jacques said, to find out why, you know, this has all come to be, why he's so insufferable in the same sense that I wonder, you know, why our current POTUS has, what led for him to be this way. But I, again, don't really feel compelled enough to stick around. It, it does drag. Um, and the trippy moments, as trippy as they are, and as compelled I am by trippiness on screen, just are not enough to keep me going. I mean, the, the perfect example of trippiness is Diane Keaton wearing that T-shirt. Yes. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm a virgin, but this is an old shirt. Right. You're like, yeah. So, so Diane Keaton, who plays a, a nun, which is... Uh, I think important to know in terms of that T-shirt, um, and and she plays this nun who shows up. She's been, in fact, a longtime associate of uh, of Pope Lenny Bellardo uh, from the time that he was a very young boy, uh, and she shows up, I think, initially, and she seems as though she might be one of those sort of evil nannies, like from the Omen or something, you know, <laughs> who show up almost unbidden, you know, to look after Damien, uh, but. That becomes less and less clear. I mean, one of the many things that doesn't get pinned down very well, at least over three episodes, is exactly what her role is going to be. It mm. seems like she's not going to be this kind of eminence grease uh, looking over this pope. You know, Jacques, I feel as though there are two shadows that are flung across this series. One of them is the shadow of Pope Francis. This seems to be a very odd time to be doing a series about an evil pope mm-hmm. while, you know, while we have this pope who's just like everybody's dreamboat right now. Everybody loves Pope Francis. So, I mean, that's an odd thing. Like, h- how, how do we relate to that? And, and then I think the other shadow being flung across this is the shadow of Donald Trump. We are living right now. I mean, first of all, uh, what we'll do maybe is just play a little bit. Here's... Um, uh, Pope uh, Pius XIII, uh, alias Jude Law. Uh, it's the first clip, by the way, Wolfie, uh, giving a speech, from a long-awaited homily from the balcony. What have we forgotten? We have forgotten you! Let me be very clear. I am here for one very simple reason. To not forget anyone. God does not leave anyone behind. That is what he told me when I decided to serve him. And it is what I say to you now. I serve God. I serve you. Other aspects of that homily are very, very dark indeed. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, people who really can't afford to put any relationship ahead of their relationship with God. And and Jacques, I feel as though we are, this is very much a series, I mean, the, the fundamental premise or joke or whatever of this series is that somehow or other, uh, the the conclave has elected this guy. They don't know that very much. That don't know very much about who seems inappropriately primed to do the job that he's sent out to do. Who seems unpredictable, profane, um, transgressive, uh, aggressive, uh, and 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 hell bent on defying every single convention of the job. And of course, we're kind of living that reality now. And maybe even in a, in a more vivid way with the president. <laughs> and I, I just wonder whether this series can successfully compete with with our lived reality. Well, I think you know to get back to the the Pope Francis question, um, you know, you have to wonder in terms of the curia that elected him. You're supposed to believe the the Holy Spirit has, is driving the process, but you know, did they get what they were 
you know, uh, what they thought they were buying mm-hmm. in terms of all of a sudden he's he's much more liberal than uh, certainly his predecessor. Um, and so I think maybe uh, maybe there is a bit of uh, a relationship between this uh, figure that, you know, if they were looking for someone who's going to maintain the status quo, you know, Pope Francis has not necessarily been that person. Um, but I think it definitely aligns much more with um, Donald Trump uh, in terms of, A, the Pope never yells. I'm sorry, I have been in the presence of the Pope. He doesn't yell. He's not Ava Perone on the balcony of the Casa Rosada <laughs> screaming. As neither does the press secretary, though. And so there's a little bit of that, right? That yeah. This well, is not Kellyanne Conway's sister Mary. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, but I think in terms of the you never know what's going to come out of his mouth and the people he surrounds himself with, he um, constantly surprises, subverts um, just when you think you have him kind of maybe figured out like, oh, he's going to be a very liberal pope. He's like, we need to purge the mm-hmm. church of all the, hom- homosexuals. Uh, all the homosexuals. So – uh, and then, of course, he's saying he doesn't even really believe in God and right, right, whatnot. Right. And so, but he is the uh, omnipotent, right? Yeah, and seemingly Jude Law, like Donald Trump, has never read the Bible because <laughs> they never actually quote the Bible once <laughs> in the Young Pope, <laughs> even when he's sermonizing. So uh, I'm not sure that the director writer uh, <laughs> bothered to research the Bible at all. So, I, but I, I mean, I just feel like in it is very much of the moment we're living in now, uh, and you can watch it played out in real time uh, without kangaroos and other absurdities. Right. Well, yeah, it's like it doesn't compete. It's more of a companion to reality. You know, it can't compete, but it it does uh, illuminate in a not subtle way. Um, I, I think it's happening. a weak foil in many regards mm-hmm. as to what's mm-hmm. going on. I mean, if I wanted to watch a show about a white guy that thought the world belonged to him, I'd turn on the news. Like, it, it just doesn't feel... Enough, like they could, maybe if you're going to be that absurd, really lean into the absurdity, make it the whole thing a fever dream, and then maybe it has a chance of saying something about our current moment. But right now, it just pales in comparison to what's actually happening in reality on our television screens right now. <laughs> All right, so it's the Young Pope on HBO. Watch it if you must. The second episode is much better than the first. In the second episode, uh, to uh, Rebecca's point, involved features a kangaroo um, hopping around the Vatican Gardens, which is you know that's nicely absurd, uh, and it does feature Diane Keaton in the aforementioned T-shirt. It maybe <laughs> has a little bit more sense of the Pope of Twin Peaks. Uh, so watch it if you want, and certainly if you have young children and a job, uh, and the whole world looks like a fever dream to you, then this will fit right in uh, to what you're doing. We're going to grab a break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about a brouhaha in the world of haha comedy. <laughs> and we're back. This is The Nose. Uh, with me uh, doing The Nose today, Tanisha Dugan, producing associate at TheaterWorks, Jacques Lamar, senior project manager at Buzz Engine, Rebecca Castellani, scholar of modern literature. Um, so uh, this week, we're going to shift gears here. Uh, this week, a writer for Saturday Night Live, 
These people tend not to be particularly famous. Her name is Katie Rich. Uh, she got suspended from her job uh, for a tweet, a tweet that she did on her own Twitter account. Uh, it was a tweet about Barron, the son, youngest child of Donald Trump. Uh, it said, Barron will be this country's first homeschool shooter. Uh, she apologized profusely on Monday on Twitter. She tweepologized, I guess you'd say. <laughs> um, and... Um, and and all hell broke loose. She got uh, suspended, as I say, indefinitely from her job. Um, and and so and a debate also ensued in the world of comedy, as it will, about sort of what's too transgressive. Is anything too transgressive? If you're a comedy writer, should you ever get punished for jokes? So, um, Rebecca, I'll start with you. I mean, what did you make of all this? Oh, it's a, it feels like a tough question to answer because yes of course school shooting is a terrible thing it's not a laughing matter but i think that the way she she worded it it's more a joke about how insufferable baron's father is than how you know potentially you know baron definitely has been kept out of the spotlight maybe for a reason maybe not but we don't really know much about him like we know of the other trump siblings minus poor tiffany <laughs> forgotten trump um but i i think that the joke itself wasn't unfunny. I don't think it was really as much a joke about school shootings as it was about Trump and Barron's relationship to Trump. Um, and it was her personal Twitter. So, yeah, I do think it's a little overly sensitive for them to suspend her. I think, you know, if people were offended, it might be worth apologizing for. But I think to suspend her over something she did on her private Twitter account, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's sort of two – there's two debates here, Tanisha. One of them is what kind of joke was this? And then – the other debate is, should you ever get suspended for, uh, uh, from your job for a joke if you're a comedy writer? And, and so the first debate to me is more interesting than the second debate. The second debate, I, to me, it's insane that she got suspended from her job. But the first debate's an interesting one, right? What kind of joke is this? It's a joke that does seem to kind of kick the tripwire of Columbine and Sandy Hook. It's a, a joke that seems to violate a kind of spoken and unspoken tenet that you don't go after the children. Um, and it may also be a joke, maybe not, maybe Katie Rich is aware of this, maybe not. There's been kind of a little um, susurration uh, on the uh, internet that, that Barron may be somewhere on the autism spectrum. I don't know whether that's in there anywhere. But it's a joke that made me uncomfortable. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's a terrible joke, though. Hmm. It did, I, I, it did not register on my radar at all as something that was important in any way. And so when I read the tweet, I was like, oh... They all look sad. And I yeah. think what she's trying to make a comment on is that no one of this family seems happy. It plays at into all. the free Melania memes. Right. She looks so miserable and like she's trapped and like blinking SOS into the camera. Like it, it I, I definitely er think it's Eric more that. seems happy. Well, it's <laughs> his time, isn't it? <laughs> He's like, finally, I'm the new king. But I think that to me is what I got out of the tweet was that like this is a family that was not on board with what this man decided he wanted to do. And the littlest one, you know, I think she was trying to make a comment about the littlest one having the most, you know, uh, getting getting the most effect out of it. Right. So there's kind of two theories of comedy, Jacques. I mean, uh, when, when it comes to this kind of thing, one of them is, you know, there, there's sort of an Anthony Jeselnik on the extreme who's basically saying, look, I am going to make jokes about whatever I want to make jokes about and probably uh, gravitate towards things that make you very uncomfortable. If you don't find that funny, that's your problem, not my problem. Uh, Anthony Jeselnik, however, is mostly a free operator doing stand-up comedy and whatever kinds of specials you know, he can set up, whereas comedy writers who work for a network, particularly one 
as vertically integrated as NBC. Mm. NBC has everything from Saturday Night Live and Seth Meyers uh, to Morning Joe and Meet the Press and, and, and The news, Apprentice. And The Apprentice <laughs> and news programming. And I think also Access Hollywood <laughs> if it comes right down to it. I mean, NBC kind of owns the casino. They can't possibly lose because there are just enough table games going at any given time uh, that they own. But, but they have a very different relationship maybe to all of this material than a freestanding comedian would. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there are all kinds of tripwires and invisible lines that, that, you know, people feel cannot or should not be crossed. And there are comedians who can pull, pull that off, like Sarah Silverman, yeah. um, where she can say some of the most outrageous things and you're like, oh, Sarah Silverman will give her a pass kind of thing. Um, and then there are times where I remember when I think it was Gilbert Gottfried did a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was after the Japanese tsunami. Yep. Yep. And people were horrified. I think horrified. he lost his job as the duck, the Aflac duck. He did lose his job as the Aflac duck. So, um, Which is a strange punishment when you think about yeah, it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean, and you know, like when Roseanne Barr, you know, sang the national anthem, you know, screaming, it you know, the national backlash against that was so huge. Uh, and she was, you know, clearly trying to be funny. Um, so there's a question of propriety um, oftentimes. And, and comedy plays with those lines. And, uh, you know, there was such outrage on my f- Facebook feed um, from people who are like, you know, leave the kids alone. Leave the kids alone. I had put a... a, a joke on my page, uh, you know, during the primary season saying, you know, Baron Trump, you are no Amy Carter. And people went n- kind of nuts <laughs> on me. And I'm like, you know, I was like, I wasn't really that me. <laughs> it well, was m- <laughs> but I think also, you know, it's weird because the, we're just, in some ways we're talking about two different eras that we haven't really acknowledged this, Rebecca, so that, you know, a, a lot of this sort of don't touch the kids stuff. Um, started really in the era of Amy Carter uh, and Chelsea Clinton. I mean, it wasn't always followed. It wasn't always observed. Uh, there are, you know, there are there have been violations of I think probably every um, uh, White House child who could really plausibly be called a child. But that all lived in an era where jokes came from you know some legacy sources. That's yeah. where like how you would know about something even would be because you saw it on Saturday Night Live or right. or somebody's monologue on late night television. Now jokes come from the Internet and you know and, and Jacques is posting stuff up on his Facebook page. That's a much harder thing to police or or create dichotomies about. Well, I think what Jacques said about certain people given being given a pass. I mean, if Kate McKinnon wrote this joke, would we be in the same situation? But because it's a no-name writer, is she thrown under the bus in some sense? Because we don't know who she is, and she is in some sense because we don't know who she is. Just another voice in the vast volume of internet trolls. However, I just want to say all the people that are 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 really approaching this with such like, oh, don't come here, the kids, don't come here, the kids. Sasha and Malia went through hell. You know, they they were trolled by, you know, the right wing disgustingly. So I think that this whole, people are being a little sensitive right now. Yeah. We've always had this. It's it's anyone who's in the spotlight. Look at the children of celebrities. It's the same situation. We, we look at them in a way that is unfortunately but, you're in the spotlight. But at the same time, if you're saying that they were trolled disgustingly, then when the tables are turned and it's a candidate we don't like. No, I, I don't think it's... Yeah, it's, I mean, so I, you know... It, I just don't think this was the same thing as trolling. I think this was a joke 
that unfortunately were in a very sensitive moment that fell yeah. flat. And I, 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 mean, I, I agree that that I think that it says more about the Trumps than it says yeah. about Barron. I would not have written that joke. Um, but um, you I'm just curious, wrote one about the, the Pope menstruating. Well, I know. I mean, I thought about that <laughs> I, I, as I wrote as I wrote today's intro, um, and I did sort of change one tiny little thing about it because I realized, you know, that the Pope means something very different yeah. to different people, uh, and. Uh, as a result, um, you know, I mean, I tailored it a little bit. But I also thought, well, on the, the, this is comedy. We do a comedy opening. The idea of a, a woman pope who has menstrual cramps is kind mm-hmm. of intrinsically funny to me anyway. And the idea of cardinals screaming about it because they can't he- stand to hear about the bodily functions yeah. of women <laughs> is especially funny to me. So I'm doing it. Um, so what's, the, what's the, the pause when it comes to the joke about Baron? Because it's a kid. It's a yeah. little kid. He, he didn't ask for this life. Uh, my guess is he's not having a very good life. Uh, my guess is that there's no way for him. A great life. Well, I don't know. Right? I, I don't, could be. Donald Trump is your father. I mean, think about that. He's 10 years old. I, I don't know. I just wouldn't do it uh, for that reason. But do you feel like this was targeted directly at Barron? It doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, he, the shrapnel gets all over him. And, and you know, it's also a joke about school shootings. I, right. I don't find school shootings all that funny. Right. Um, I, to me, I just wouldn't have written that joke. It but was I wouldn't a have very thought, good joke. I no. just don't think she should have been suspended. Right. I wouldn't have suspended it. anybody for that either. Um, so <laughs> we're doing this very complicated <laughs> thing with our clock. Uh, so I, I'm assuming, unless somebody stops me right now, that I'm not going to a break. And I, we're going to switch gears. We're going to be talking about Mary Tyler Moore. Mary Tyler Moore, of course, died this week uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut. Connecticut uh, at the age of, I believe, 80. Um, I have no idea whether Tanisha Dugan and Rebecca Castellani, young things uh, that they are, uh, had much contact with Mary Tyler Moore, but I do know that Jacques and I did. So we'll find out more about this uh, as we go along. Um, Mary Tyler Moore, obviously a comedy icon, uh, first won the Hearts of America as Laura Petrie, Rob uh, Petrie's uh, loving wife on the Dick Van Dyke show, and then, of course, as Mary Richards on the Mary Tyler Moore show. So, Jacques, since you and I are men of a certain age, maybe we'll begin this conversation. Uh, I don't know, who, is, who, who was she to you? Was she important to you? Did you stay home on Saturday nights and watch the Mary Tyler uh, Moore show? Well, as, as we email back and forth preparing for the nose, I had responded that I always felt like I was more of a Rhoda than a Mary. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, in terms of when it was being originally broadcast, I was a little too young to appreciate uh, Mary Tyler Moore, the Mary Tyler Moore show. And so when the Rhoda show came along, that was really what I watched. Or when you watched Mary Tyler Moore, you're waiting to see Rhoda. Um, but I think uh, knowing the context of, you know, how, how, how important that show was in terms of um, – of a single woman having a career, um, and also it it was almost like the first workplace comedy in a way. I, you could correct me on that, but I feel like there are a lot of shows that that owe much to her and that kind of independent spirit and and the the woman who's who's kind of self deprecating but um, has ideals. Uh, and then also the fact that it was a it was an ensemble comedy uh, where she really shared shared the humor. She surrounded herself with these amazing characters. Yeah, and you know, Tanisha, this is something that fascinates me. I'm fascinated by ensembles anyway. Um, and one of the um, tenets of ensembles, 
uh, whether they existed on television or anywhere else, including I think comic strips are often ensemble comedies, is that you have somebody who's the moral locus, right? You have somebody who's the, who's, who represents some kind of centering uh, agent uh, who believes in most of society's norms and is you know more or less a good person, whether it's Charlie Brown or, or Mary Richards or Alex Rieger, the character that Judd Hirsch played on Taxi. Um, you know, you can take it all the way back to David Copperfield. Like everybody else is kind of going crazy and doing all their crazy stuff and either being snarky or just really weird. Uh, and then there's sort of this kind of one person who represents us, I think, you know, kind of a stand in for what our basic expectations are. And what's weird is starting around Seinfeld, I think they started eliminating that person. Like you do ensemble comedies now. You don't need that person anymore, which I find a very odd thing. It's funny, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, is that really true? <laughs> and maybe that's why I feel that way, yeah. because I, I don't often see that. Or if I if, if I think of it, I go back to like the group theater, and when they were writing plays, that was probably one of the things they needed to make sure that they included when they were, 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 work, were making new work. But I don't think that is particularly necessary now, and I think maybe that's why, one of the reasons why I have no real connection to who she is because it's an archetype that hasn't continued through so it's not as if you when you see this character here you can trace it back to Mary Tyler Moore um it just it just didn't carry itself forward in that same way. I would even make the argument that right around that time, we elected our president, Jimmy Carter, who was also one of those people. Mm. And it was the last time we did it. <laughs> um, so, so even that's out. So, Rebecca, you know, you were saying on the emails that you didn't have – you're just too young and didn't watch that particular show on TV land. On the other hand, I mean, we live in a world where there are all these shows about young single people yeah. whose lives aren't working out quite the way they thought that they would, which was the sort of basic premise sure. of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah, and I mean, I think the fact that Tanisha and I kind of have the same experience where this was not a cultural touchstone for us, the fact that these shows do exist, girls, you know, it's 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 followers, that is just a testament to me is how effective Mary Tyler Moore was. I mean, she really did, I think, begin this tradition of, and this trope in a way of a woman in the city trying to have the career life, things not working out exactly how she planned. Though, as we'd also said in the emails, I think that a harsher time demands a harsher television as your mirror. And I think that, you know, we don't have these sympathetic figures anymore at the center. You get someone like Lena Dunham at the center who is insufferable. So I think that that's speaking more to our moment now than, you know, what was happening in the 70s, for sure. Jacques, I have that relationship to Veep, which I really like and I respect the writing and it's very funny. But there's nobody on the show who's redeemable at all. I mean, and you see that a lot. You know, people are just narcissistic and irredeemable. Um, and I don't know. Maybe I'm just so old-fashioned that, that I still need that because I crave it. And about the only place I see it is in Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> oh. oh, well, <laughs> they're all fawning. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I would say I, I didn't – I wasn't a big fan of the show, but I kind of think that 30 Rock – uh, maybe was a little bit of a descendant of the Mary she's, Tyler Moore she show. Says that. Tina Fey says yeah. that that's what yeah. she watched. Yeah. And you know, and the thing about her is, you also have to look at the progression of characters from Laura Petrie, and you know, being this young kind of kittenish housewife to uh, to being Mary Tyler Moore. This this uh, you know uh, the you know the character Mary Richards. Um, and then Ordinary People, which just kind of like blew everyone out of the water because here was like evil, mean Mary Tyler Moore, which you never thought she would have had it in her. Mm-hmm. And so I think her range uh, was was surprising for people. Yeah, I mean, her comic range is incredible. And yeah, I, Mary Tyler Moore, I had that in Ordinary People. I had the exact same reaction. I cannot believe this. 
you know, she's the ice queen, and she's a really good ice queen, too. Uh, I thought she nailed that part. So um, I guess this is like, almost like an early endorsement. We're going to go to a break here in just a second. But, you know, if, if you haven't had any relationship at all to Mary Tyler Moore, at least watch. It's about four and a half minutes long, I think, the clip of the funeral scene. It's very easy to find, the Chuckles the Clown funeral. It is, <laughs> it, it is about um, uh, a memorial service for a dead uh, television clown. Uh, and you know, Mary gets the giggles at it. After having sort of hushed her snarky co-workers, she gets the giggles and has to deal with that. All right, we'll take a break, and we're going to come back after the proverbial this. Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern was Pope Rusty the First. The part of Bill Curry was played by Anthony Quinn. Let us know what you think about our shows on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On Monday's show, we look at the ticking doomsday clock. And now, back to Colin. This is a very strange show. I should ex- explain something to people who are listening to this show. First of all, if you're listening to this show, then it is not between the hours of 1 and 2 p.m. on Friday when this show usually airs live. You're probably listening to it as a podcast or on our website at wnpr.org or you're listening to the 8 p.m. re-airing of it. And that's because of the Donald Trump press conference. Uh, and so as a result, we've kind of tried to follow a clock here, except that now, are we back live or are we back live? Now people can hear us. All right. So we have just rejoined <laughs> the announcement I just made. So you just missed – you should hear the rest of the show in one of the – if you're listening now – between one and two live, you should go back and hear the rest of the show because it's really good. All right. So I, I don't know. I just have <laughs> confused myself by making that announcement. So anyway, the way things have uh, played out, we weren't sure whether we would have time to talk about the Oscar nominations, which came out on Tuesday. But we do have a little bit of time to do this. Um, you know, first of all, these are um, – I have to explain to Tanisha, who's uh, um, a mother of young children and also holding a job. Movies are things that you go see <laughs> in movie theaters. Uh, I know them very well, yeah. in fact. You used to go see them. I used to go see them. Now I watch the same movie over and over and over again. And I have to say my oldest son has got great taste because the movie that we've been watching on repeat has been os- nominated for an Oscar, and that would be Zootopia. Zootopia so was I do excellent. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's actually about a good, movies. It's a good, I, I'm thinking of renting a child or something because <laughs> there are all these really great movies that come out that I don't see. I have no real, it's you know. You know how Zootopia, like, passed me by completely. Oh, you've yeah. got to see it. Really good. Um, Fantastic. So, um, <laughs> so, Tanisha, last year, of course, there, there was, um, you know, legitimately a, quite an outcry right. about hashtag Oscar, hashtag Oscar so white. Uh, you knew they were going to correct this somehow. <laughs> they were another you, hashtag Oscar is so woke. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we have, you know, Mahershala, uh, Mahershala, Mahershala Ali mm-hmm. uh, for Moonlight uh, nominated in the Best Supporting Actor category. Uh, and we have three um, actresses that of editor, color. right, from Moonlight? Also the first uh, black female editor to ever be nominated for an Oscar. And, and, and I mean, and I don't know, Mike Pesca on the just made a really interesting argument that, you know, you wonder how many of these things just would have happened mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. just in the normal course of things. But, you know, he actually, Mike being the kind of person who really does think things through a little bit more uh, deeply than a lot of people who make comments, he sort of worked through the whole question of whether, for example, hidden figures would have gotten all the way through the pipeline uh, in such good form and at such pace uh, if there hadn't been that. Uh, that outcry. And and so I, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't mean the battle's over, right? It just sort of means... It doesn't. And it's it's interesting because what immediately came to mind as you were talking is the thing that you never want to be when you're hired is the affirmative action hire, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Like you never want to to be that. And so 
it is a question when you see something like Hidden Figures, which I assume is a wonderful movie because, to your point, I have not seen it yet. Um, but 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 we but I assume that it is it is worthy of the praise that it's receiving, and and sometimes you know it, it is the affirmative action hire that makes that makes the difference. So Rebecca, unencumbered by small children, you get to see any movies that you want. Do you have any particular reactions to these nominations? Other than excitement that we're recognizing talent that's not just white and male, yes, absolutely. I think it's great. The only Oscar contender I have seen besides Zootopia, which is nominated, um, is La La Land, which I liked. But I think there are probably better films out there that I want to see before I don't. I would love to see Hidden Figures. My mom saw it this weekend and said it should win all the awards. She wishes that she voted in the Academy so she could vote yes on everything. So I think it's an exciting year. Um, again, there's always that question, is this just inevitable or is this an affirmative action in response to last year's debacle? But I would like to think we're moving forwards where we don't even have to have this conversation in, in later years and we just recognize talent for talent. You know, I I, I don't feel like this year is necessarily a, a course correction where they're checking boxes to make sure. You know, I, I think that that the quality, you know, of those films that are driven by uh, by people of color is not that they weren't that wasn't there last year, but I think that the the work this year is undeniable. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I mean, Moonlight, yeah. Fences, yeah. Hidden Figures, uh, Lion. Um, to me, the biggest shocker is Mel Gibson oh. in Hacksaw Ridge. You know, speaking of people who, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you would think would not get a pass anymore. <laughs> uh, I think that is like the shocker of all shockers mm-hmm. that, that he's, you know, not that a win, uh, but that he's even yeah. invited to the table, right? Invited to the table. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it does seem as though this is a year in which the uh, people who make up the academy would like to curb the excesses of Donald Trump any way they can. Meryl Streep already tried at the Golden Globes. I can't imagine that they would allow things to take place in such a way that Mel Gibson was giving an acceptance speech. Uh, for, I, just, I just don't think that that can possibly happen. One thing that I thought was kind of nice is even though – I don't know that it necessarily led to the, to the best set of nominations. But, you know, the actor in a leading role category is kind of weak this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've got Casey Affleck, who's probably still a little bit of a favorite, and Ryan Gosling and Denzel Washington. And then you've got Andrew Garfield for Hacksaw Ridge, which is the Mel Gibson-directed movie, which I have not seen. That's the Mel Gibson. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> I'm getting confused. And Viggo Mortensen for Captain Fantastic, which I have only the vaguest, like, 2% notion of what it is. It's I know supposed it, to be fantastic. It's supposed to be really good? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, hence the name, yes, perhaps. Well. But, um, <laughs> so clever. So the, but I think one of the things that they didn't do, so those are like, you know, Viggo Mortensen's movie is something that nobody's ever seen and, and you know. I mean, you Casey know. Affleck's going to win it. Yeah. He's so unbelievably good in that movie. But what they could have done, and I'm so glad that they didn't, not that I bear him any animus, but I mean, Tom Hanks, you know, turned into one of his sort of high caliber uh, performances in, in Sully this mm. year. I mean, he ordinarily would have been in the field, and I'm kind of glad that they turned a blind eye to him and just went and looked for maybe something a little bit more obscure or less celebrated. Tom Hanks, I'm sure, you know, uses Oscars to prop up wobbly coffee tables and stuff like that. <laughs> and he doesn't really need any more of them. Um, and, I, you know, for, I, mean, I couldn't be a bigger admirer of Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's wonderful, and I thought she was wonderful at the Golden Globes. But I sort of feel that way in the leading uh, actress in the leading role category. It's Isabelle Huppert, who people are very high on right now, Natalie Portman, Ruth Negga for Loving, and Emma Stone for La La Land, and then Meryl Streep. But then there's, you know, 
I do feel not that it, once again I should feel about Amy Adams the way I feel about Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we're living in Amy Adams's universe right now. Uh, but I mean, she really was was amazing in Arrival, and she was not unamazing in Nocturnal Animals. Um, and and I hear Annette Bening is really great great yeah. in 20th Century Women too. So you know, you sort of wonder maybe it would is be that a nice even thing. out yet? Is that yes, officially out? That is playing at your local multiplex. Twentieth century. Maybe women. I'll visit my local multiplex. <laughs> maybe you absolutely should. <laughs> so, um, and I guess the other thing that I'm sort of wondering, I, I can't believe this. Well, one thing we should say is, you know, it's always when you look at the Oscar nominations, you think, so was this a good year for movies or not? Yeah. And I can't really decide. Although to Jock's point about whether it's checking boxes. Um, uh, you probably haven't seen this one either. Uh, but Moonlight, you know, which didn't get a huge ride. You know, I mean, it, it, there wasn't some huge studio apparatus that was deployed to make this uh, a, a big movie. And it didn't even play in markets uh, all that long, although I guess it's sort of trickling back in. But, um, you know, Tanisha, that's an example in, in, of an incredibly worthy movie that – that that you can also really love, mm-hmm. and and I do feel like this is a year for those kinds of movies anyway. For sure, and and that movie, you know, I I knew about it because I stay true to the Twitter these days, <laughs> and it was all over my Twitter feed um, because I think it was one of those stories that had never been told. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was a small movie that never that had never been told um, by a director Barry Jenkins that people don't really know. He's not Ava DuVernay, you know. Right. He, he doesn't have that sort of publicist background. He is he now. Can, he he is now. Um, and so it was exciting to see that story move forward. And 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 I think there are a lot of movies like that. Um, that are coming around. I mean, it's interesting. I'm watching what's coming out of Sundance right now, and and I curb what I say because there's a certain sort of like I don't know if anything at Sundance 2017 is is as good as as last year. Mm. Um, but to think that uh, work like Moonlight and that you know things like Netflix, you know, or Amazon, excuse me, having an Oscar nominated film, it's a it's a it's a new world. Well, and and think about you know in terms of of uh, coming out of I don't know if it was Sundance, but Everyone was losing their minds over Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, you know, it landed with a thud. And, you know, everyone thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, like 12 years a slave. Mm-hmm. And it, no. <laughs> and and, no. and, uh, and so I think, you know, I think what's interesting about Moonlight is it deals with uh, with black homosexuality, mm-hmm. which is a subject that is extremely uncomfortable and difficult to have in the in the black community, and so I don't know where where the audience is for this mm-hmm. film. I've kind of shifted my allegiances over from Manchester uh, by the see. Sea to Moonlight in terms of I, I would be so thrilled if Moonlight were to win Best Picture. Jacques and I differ greatly about La La Land. It's because uh, I'm white. We, we, already, <laughs> we already played that whole thing out uh, on a previous it? episode. I loved La La Land. Yeah. yeah. I did not love it. Um, <laughs> I, I will say just – Frank I just, Rizzo wrote meh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I felt so much better after he did that. Uh, so I do want to salute the work of – I want to do sort of noses so Oscar um, <laughs> and say that, first of all, to salute two of our our, our friends from the Nose family, Kate Russian and Irene Papoulos, when uh, OJ Made in America mm. uh, came out. I said, all right, we're going to do a nose about this and you have to watch all eight and a half hours or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, So don't say yes if you're not willing to do it. Um, and so they um, huddled together at Irene's house and ordered Indian food and binge watched 
like the whole seven and a half or eight or whatever it is hours uh, of that. And then and so it's nominated for an Oscar for best documentary uh, now. And Carolyn Waterlow actually joined us on that show. She is one of the two nom- nominees along with Ezra Edelman for that um, award. So. Um, you know, I think, you know, when heroic nose panelists just are willing to die on the beach for one of these things. You know, I find it so fascinating because also with the 13th mm-hmm. um, that I'm just like these are TV. These are made for TV. Mm. And so there's this, you know, I don't know if it's like they they ran OJ in like one theater one afternoon and got an, <laughs> got an Oscar nomination. Like I don't recall that you were able to go see it in a theater. Jonathan McNichol is telling me that's exactly what they did. They ran it in one theater you know, to qualify it that way. Um, but I think cheaters. Well, increasingly, and there, there have been a number of things that were created for Netflix that have been nominated for Oscars over the last one or two years too. So uh, I think we'll see more and more of that uh, because they put more and more resources. And maybe the young Pope will be up for an Oscar next year. Who knows? Um, so uh, now we have to switch gears and uh, think about endorsements. Usually, they have a break so they can gather their wits and figure out and try to remember what it is they're going to endorse. Rebecca Castellani, do you remember what? it is you were yes. going to endorse already. In fact, I do. <laughs> so my first one is quick. Um, I loved HBO's documentary on Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher, Bright Lights. Highly recommend. It was very sweet and sad in parts, but worth watching. My other one um, is an initiative that was actually started by my mother. It's called Art Forms. Um, the whole point is to make art accessible um, to therapeutic communities and they're studying it um, through Quinnipiac University. So they're currently offering classes for the MS community through the Farmington Valley Arts Center in, Sims- in Avon, Connecticut. You can find out more at artforms.org or check out their Facebook. It's just Artforms. Um, lots of different classes going on. I know they've done initiatives for PTSD uh, sufferers, cancer patients, MS patients. So they're doing all sorts of different. So if you know someone that is looking for an outlet, a creative outlet, it's a great initiative. You can check it out online, artforms.org. All right. Uh, and Tanisha, what, what about you? Cool. Uh, so Gil Scott Heron said the, lev- the revolution will not be televised. The le- revolution will be live. And Chris Arnott gave us a lovely uh, review for Sunset Baby, which ended that the revolution is here. So I want to invite you all to see Sunset Baby, particularly on February 14th, because we'll be doing a night of hope uh, where we are supporting Artist Collective with a pro- portion of the proceeds from that evening. So if you haven't seen Sunset Baby, I push you towards that night. Um, Tony Todd, our, our, our star, is an Artist Collective alum, um, and we love that organization. But really what I want to endorse, in addition to Theodore's, who I love, is the zipper method. Can we please, when we're on the highway, in traffic, one at a time, in oh. line, in line, in line. Are you mentioning that Follow of today? the <laughs> traffic, because I just feel like it's a metaphor for life. And if we can all just one at a time, off the exit, in traffic <laughs> or not, it may be a little better place. Keep dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The zipper method. Please. You go and then I'll go. You go and then I'll go. All right, Jacques, what have you got? So for I us? go? Okay. You go. <laughs> and then I'll go. All right. Um, I would, uh, I am I am endorsing uh, something I have not seen yet, uh, but I will be going tonight. And that is Jimmy and Lorraine at um, the University of St. Joseph. Mm-hmm. Heartbeat Ensemble um, mounted the show. Uh, and it's an unusual show for them because they normally write through this ensemble process, and this is not um, a usual type of work for them. Uh, but it's about um, James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry. Uh, it's about their their writing, their lives, their activism. 
Um, and uh, and it was such a big hit that I waited too long and could not get a ticket. And so they're bringing it back for, is it two or three performances? Three, tonight, Saturday, and Sunday. Yeah, and so um, it's at the uh, Otterino Center at the University of St. Joseph. Um, you can uh, get tickets through their website, or you can probably link through heartbeatensemble.org. But everyone who saw it uh, raved about it, and I'm glad I finally have a chance to see it again. Good boy. Didn't you just say, don't you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the young pope. I, I totally tried to white privilege into it, but they weren't having it. All right. That's actually a nice theater, that you know, theater. It is. It's a beautiful there. theater. And as you say, it's part of their Roots Festival, so... See, see Jimmy and Lorraine and also see what else they've got going on. It's an incredible couple of months of work. All right. Speaking of roots, are you all done, by the way? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, speaking of roots, uh, you go, then I'll go. Um, <laughs> speaking of roots, I want to endorse Half an Onion. Um, specifically, oh. the, Twitter, the Twitter account, <laughs> Half an Onion in a Bag is actually its name. Uh, the premise of the Twitter account you know, is basically that this uh, onion that has been sliced in half and placed inside a plastic bag needs to get more followers than the real Donald Trump. Uh, and but meanwhile, it's so it, it's a little bit of a form of online protest, um, but it's also very funny. Uh, and How's it doing? It's funny you should ask. Six hundred eighty-one thousand followers right now. It's got a ways oh, to go yeah. to catch him. But it's new. It's a brand new thing. It's, it hasn't really even tweeted that many times. But its tweets are funny, uh, and it's like a fun thing that you can do online with your friends. Someone was doing a, a thing where you could either like Donald Trump or a used copy of Shrek 2 on DVD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think this is the uh, uh, similar to that meme, but maybe one meme to rule them all, one meme to bind them. Uh, so half an onion in a bag. And then also, as you're kind of catching up with the Oscars <clears throat> um, and making sure that maybe you see, saw a few of the nominees, well, um, eight hours of OJ might be kind of a big lift, but also in that category is Fire at Sea, um, a documentary movie about the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. Uh, it is playing, uh, courtesy of our own news panelist James Hanley at Trinity Cine Studios, starting on Sunday and running through Tuesday. Uh, I've, I'm told it's wonderful, and it just you know, just for catching up with the Oscars and making sure on Oscar night, <clears throat> when hopefully he'll be with us at Spotlight Theaters for our. Uh, Oscars for AIDS party, uh, but you know, wherever you are, you'll actually know what's going on and you'll recognize that movie. So go see it this weekend. I'm going to Fire at Sea at Trinity Cine Studio. Thanks very much to Rebecca Castellani, Tanisha Dugan, and Jacques Lamar. We'll be back next week. Let me tell you, that's what I love about these young popes, man. I get older, they stay the same age. (laughs) Yes, they do.